You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. Hello. Welcome to the International Spy Museum. I'm Amanda Olke, Director of Adult Education here. I'm so glad you're here for Spy Chat with our Executive Director, Chris Costa. Chris should need no introduction, but for the record, he is a former intelligence officer of 34 years, with 25 of those in active duty, hot spots such as Panama, Bosnia, Afghanistan, and Iraq. He's also a past special assistant to the president and senior director for counterterrorism on the National Security Council. And today, Chris is joined by Karen Schaefer, who's an advisory board member here. During Karen's 26-year career with the CIA, she held numerous leadership positions, including overseas assignments as an operations officer in Latin America, Europe, Afghanistan, and Iraq. Her headquarters positions included Chief of Operations, Directorate of Science and Technology, Deputy Associate Director of Military Affairs, Deputy Chief of Counterintelligence Near East Division, Executive Assistant to Deputy Director CIA, and Group Chief Iran Operations Division. I know that Karen and Chris worked together in the past. We may never know exactly how or where, but they do share some past, which will be interesting if they'll touch upon that at all today. I don't know. Anyway, needless to say, we have some very informed <coughs> perspectives on current issues up here on the stage. Now, we'll begin with some brief comments from both Chris and Karen, and then we'll open the floor up to your questions. We have microphones on either side of the stage. Please use those so everyone can hear, and we also record this, so we want to really hear your questions. And if anyone can't make it, if you're trapped in a in an unforgiving row, I'll be looking around and I can um, bring a mic to you. Now, 
Before I hand this over to Chris and Karen, some of you may be carrying spy devices with you that make noises or go off to alert you. Please silence those gadgets. We'd really appreciate it. So over to you. Thank you very much, Amanda. So good afternoon. Thank you very much for coming today and joining Karen and I for this program. First of all, I want to say uh, one of my significant accomplishments in the last two years is convincing Karen to come to the Spy Museum to join our board of advisors and participate in this program. So I'm really excited to have Karen here. So this is really your program. So this is going to be driven by your questions. So what I thought I would do, and this is our second iteration, we're still learning. What I thought I would do is just share some news articles, uh, just some headlines, some top lines, if you will, of issues that I'm tracking that I think are very, very relevant for national security. And then we will invite questions. You can ask us about some of the areas we cover, or you can go off script because there is none and ask us anything you want. And to the extent we can, we will try to ask if it's related to national security or spying. So the first story that I'm tracking this month, month that I think is really important is reads like this, how the CIA used crypto AG, which is a Swiss company, encryption devices to spy on countries for decades. It's a very important story of a long-term operation that, to be frank, I had no awareness of. It was likely deeply sensitive. The idea that the CIA and the Germans, the German Foreign Intelligence Service, the BND, had control of a Swiss company, Neutral Switzerland, and basically sold encryption devices to over 120 countries across the world. And then we spied on them. We had access to their secrets while they used encryption devices provided by the CIA. Of course, they didn't know that. Uh, many of them didn't know that probably until last week when the Washington Post story broke. It's a fascinating story of a long-term a CIA operation that I think is very important and to recognize that we did this operation with the Germans from roughly post-World War II for 50 years. So that's a story I found interesting. Another story related to just pure espionage is this idea that the Danes, Denmark Security Services, arrested some Iranian opposition groups suspected of spying for the Saudis. So we're talking about an opposition move, movement from Iran. They're Khuzestani Arabs. So they're from a population that is roughly anti-Iran in their temperament, in their experience. And the bottom line is they were going to spy on Iranians in Denmark. I think that's an interesting story. In our last, in our last segment, we talked about another Iranian uh, opposition group. Another story that I think is really important, and I think we're, we're likely going to take some questions from the audience on China, right? And uh, a couple things have happened in the last 24 hours that I'm tracking. Five media companies that are associated with the Chinese government were sent media platforms were essentially declared Chinese government actors for all intents and purposes, which means they're no longer considered just journalistic outlets and they're going to be treated like government entities. And I think what the United States is trying to do with that is essentially develop some reciprocity where we treat the Chinese the way they treat us in China. So this is just one aspect of leveling the playing field a little bit uh, because these journalists are very much aligned to Chinese Communist Party 
interests. So I found that a fascinating story. And along with that, you might have noted that some Wall Street Journal journalists uh, were thrown out of China in the last 24 hours or so. And that's a result of what? Probably the actions taken by the United States government. And add another China story that's very important, and that's this company called Equifax. I think that's how you pronounce it. In 2017, was hacked by the Chinese, the Chinese military. And that also is a very important subject to all Americans because millions of Americans their private information was accessed by these Chinese hackers that belonged to a military organization. I believe there were four of them that were named. And that means there's a ratcheting of counterintelligence activities appropriately directed against Chinese uh, military and intelligence entities. So I'll, I'll stop there on counterintelligence stories because I think we'll talk a little bit about that in a few minutes. Just uh, running forward with some terrorist stories that I think are very important for us to talk about possibly is there was a strike, a drone strike I believe was directed against al-Rimi in uh, Yemen, right? And uh, al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, if you remember in the last few years, they have tried to develop capabilities to bring down aircrafts. And all of that work with Western intelligence services and U.S. special operations and foreign partners has really kept al-Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula on the run. And I think that is a good news story because th this is a terrorist organization that wants to bring down airlines, commercial airlines, and kill innocent people. I think that's a significant blow to Al-Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula. And I should note that Ryan Owens, a SEAL, in 2017 was killed on an intelligence raid. We knew Ryan. We knew who he was. I was at the White House when, when the decision was made to conduct a raid against Al-Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula. So very lethal actors. They're on their heels. Um, additionally, there's a really long piece I would just flag for this audience. Um, not something we'll talk about at any length, but uh, an interesting piece was published about how states, nations decide to strike people, how they decide to take direct action against terrorist targets like Al-Rimi. It was in the, the New Yorker, and it's a very long piece, but it talks about Qasem Soleimani, who we talked about last month, who was head of essentially uh, Iranian Quds forces, proxy forces. I think it's an interesting story, but it linked it to other decisions other countries have reportedly made for strikes. <clears throat> In moving forward, and then I'll wrap up, there was another citizen, U.S. citizen, kidnapped in Afghanistan. This is important because the United States and Western uh, partners, we track hostages. We try to recover those hostages. The fact that it happened while we're in the midst of possibly peace and reconciliation, and there's an American from Illinois that has a family that is now being held uh, by uh, the Taliban or one of their proxies in Afghanistan is an important story that sometimes gets missed. And I guess I'll close out by saying another interesting big picture national security issue that I am watching very closely is the president, I think, is planning on going to India. And what's important about that is we talked about China, and I think Karen has some things to say about China, and we also will invite questions from you, but 
by developing a stronger relationship with India that provides as a counterbalance, I think, to some of China's efforts globally. And you'll note that this week, Secretary of State Pompeo is in Africa doing the same thing, trying to counter some of China's influence and really make sure some of our soft power becomes more aligned with some of our African partners. So those are the stories that I'm watching. As I said, when it's time for questions, we'll, we'll answer whatever we can. Thank you, Karen. Hi, Chris. First of all, thanks for inviting me to be here. Uh, he really didn't have to twist my arm too much. This is something that uh, I'm very passionate about, and I was fortunate enough to work with the agency for 26 years. I loved it. I think it's a fabulous career. I'm happy to talk to anybody if you're interested in pursuing a career in either the agency or the FBI. Um, and it's a way that I can continue to give back to the community. Uh, I, I also have to have to laugh because this morning as I was walking out the door, I said to my five-year-old son, I said, hey, will you wish me luck? I'm going to do this talk. And he said, mom, I'm sure you're going to have a great speech. Just make sure you win. <laughs> I, said, I was like, zero-sum game. All right. <laughs> so you're on notice, Chris. All I'm right. going to win. All right. You got it. <laughs> Um, so uh, Chris asked me to, to share some thoughts on what I was tracking this month, and I have to say it, it is, as you, to use the word you used last, last time around, it, there are a dizzying number of national security stories in the news on any given day. Um, but I decided to focus on a couple that I thought were particularly pertinent, but I wanted to start before I got into those just to frame a little bit of, of what I think allows you to understand a bit more how we approach the national security threat by highlighting um, the newest national counterintelligence strategy. This was something that was just published on the 10th of February by the um, NCSC, which is the National Counterintelligence and Security Council, um, Center, excuse me, and uh, they published it. It was just signed by the president in January, and it's the first one that's been written since 2016, and I can't begin to tell you how much our approach to counterintelligence has changed just within the scope of those years because the threats have evolved so dramatically. Um, and in the past, what we would do is we would address counterintelligence through the lens of nation-state actors. And clearly, we're still most concerned about those nation-state actors, um, most of whom you probably would recognize, the China, Russia, North Korea, Iran, Cuba, of the world. Um, but what they've done smartly, I think, is understood that we really have to step back a little and take a much more strategic approach. And so what they did this go around was frame it in the context of priorities and goals for the strategy. So I, I thought it would be useful just to tick through them very quickly because it will be important, I think, as we talk about most of the issues that you all are likely to raise, that you'll see how they fall within the context of almost every one of these priorities and objectives that, that um, have been laid out by the DNI. So the first one is critical infrastructure. The goal here, obviously, is to protect the U.S. government's critical infrastructure from exploitation, disruption, or degradation from foreign actors. Pretty simple and straightforward. Not quite so simple and straightforward because how do you define what critical infrastructure is? And it is something that we as an intelligence community struggle with mightily. And you'll see as we talk about some of the threats that we've been facing, it's not just things that are, might seem obvious like physical infrastructure, but then it's things like supply chain, 
It's things like how do we have access to pharmaceuticals in time of need. So it's really interesting and well beyond the scope of what you might first consider. Um, second piece is key supply chains. Again, here's, here the goal is more from a defensive perspective and it's focused on pre preventing foreign efforts to seed in either, cap um, either uh, products or services that could compromise the integrity of national, uh, the U.S. government or the defense establishment's capabilities inside the United States in particular, but also in our installations overseas. The third one is focused on the U.S. economy. No surprise to you all, one of the biggest threats to our national security is undermining the competitive advantage that we have in the world and our economic prosperity. Uh, we see a lot of underhanded efforts by the Chinese in particular to steal intellectual property. So a lot of this is focused on making sure that we're doing whatever we can to ensure that the U.S. maintains its innovative advantage in the, uh, in the world economy. The next one would be American democratic institutions. Again, this probably won't surprise you if you've been watching the news and following anything for the last couple of years. Um, since the, the previous election, a lot of focus in particular on the Russians and their impact and their meddling in the last presidential election. But um, as a lot of my friends here from the FBI can testify to, we're not just concerned about the Russians. We know that the Chinese, the Iranians, the Rus or, uh, other um, key state actors watch the success that the Russians have had and are looking to emulate that for their own purposes. So this is something that goes well beyond the scope of just the Russian um, foreign uh, uh, in covert influence operations and, and um, direct intervention into the, the previous election. And then the last one is cyber and technical operations. And this again is to counter foreign intelligence efforts um, to conduct cyber and technical operations. As you can imagine with the inter internet of things exploding with the advent of 5G, their ability to access and potentially compromise or collect either collect or sabotage our capabilities are extraordinary and it's something that we are very seized with and you'll hear a lot about this in the discussion I think it's certainly why I the things that keep me awake at night almost all revolve around China simply because they are such an overwhelming force in just about every aspect and impact just about every aspect of our national security. So I'll transition away from that. I think what I will say, just a couple of things that are noteworthy about this new counterintelligence strategy, not only, as I mentioned before, the move away from nation state actors, but also um, really a recognition on the part of Bill Evanina, who is the director of the NCSC, came out and said, hey, look, what we've recognized is that given so much of the focus of our foreign intelligence actors is not simply against the U.S as a state, but against our private enterprise, that this is really going to take a whole of government, a whole of society to be able to push back on these threats, in particular working closely with the private sector and the American public, who are often going to be aware of efforts to target us well before the U.S. government might even be aware. So switching gears, as I said, I, I feel like um, you know, China for me is uh, what keeps me awake at night. Um, a couple things that I wanted to highlight, there's a whole host of them, but I'll dovetail off of what Chris said. Coronavirus. I think um, everybody should be supremely concerned about the coronavirus. I think 
Um, there's been a lot of interesting articles written about this over the last couple of months. Certainly the threat to human life is paramount and it's, de it's devastating. It's already taken over a thousand lives and I suspect that's likely underreported by the Chinese government as they are wont to do. Um, I also think um, it demonstrates the vulnerability of a top-down government in the Chinese, the way that the Communist Party runs the government, unfortunately, giving bad news is not always a good thing and it is not always something that's rewarded. As you saw, the one doctor that tried to speak out and warn about the, the uh, virus and its potential implications was very quickly um, apprehended, disciplined, and ultimately, very tragically, died and has become somewhat of a hero for some, some of the pockets of resistance inside China. So it's not something that's rewarded, which has tremendous impact. This is an epidemic which likely could have been um, arrested much earlier in the process and infected a lot less people had the Chinese government known about it and been able to address it more effectively sooner. Um, but what interests me in particular about this, and, and Chris and I were chatting about this beyond that, is really a, a piece that I had not focused on, but I read a fascinating article. Um, there's a um, scientist and policymaker, a Scowcraft Institute pandemic and biosecurity police program, a policy program base at the Bush School of Texas A&M. Um, and they wrote this fascinating piece talking about the impacts of pandemics writ large, but obviously talking specifically as it relates to this one. And what their point was that was that China presents a not just in the context of, of the spread of, of this virus, but in the context of the fact that that they are the largest and sometimes only supplier of most active ingredients in vital medications. Right now, they account for 80% of the ph pharmaceuticals that are used inside the United States. That's just the pharmaceuticals. In addition to that, there's the medical equipment, which they primarily produce. And in this piece, they were these folks at Texas A&M were raising the alarm bell saying, hey, look, for us to be able to backfill, were the Chinese ever to determine that they could no longer support the <coughs> needs outside of their own country, which are clearly significant, there would be no backup plan for the rest of the world, and certainly not for the United States. And their estimate was that it would take at least several years to reconstitute some of the infrastructure necessary to be able to provide basic pharmaceutical support, medical equipment for the needs and services of the United States people. So it's something for you to think about. It's certainly something that hadn't struck me in initially, but in the context of supply chain, infrastructure, things like that, the more dependent we become on a country like China, the more vulnerable we are to them in times of crisis. Um, I wanted to touch a little bit on Huawei, also a huge topic. Um, uh, Huawei, there was a big push, as you probably saw in the news, the Trump administration pushing very, very hard as previous administrations to convince, in particular, our NATO allies not to allow Huawei to be integrated into their national infrastructure and telecommunications. We, there was just reports out last week that the Brits made a decision to go ahead and allow the use of Huawei. This was a huge blow for the United States government because we had lobbied very hard 
particularly with the UK. It sends a really important signal in my mind, um, not just um, regarding the nature of our partnership with the UK and, and the limits of that partnership, but it also sends a message to other countries which may be considering maybe considering the integration of Huawei into their, their communications infrastructure. The challenge becomes that the United States government, the Intel community, is fairly certain that Huawei is a willing, willing partner of the Communist Party and that there are back doors that w are available that would be used as necessary to provide information to the Communist Party. So this poten potentially serves as a huge counterintelligence threat because we rely on collaborating with these partners. The UK is one of our most important Intel, um, Intel partners. Therefore, if their communications are suspect, it makes it difficult for us to effectively share intelligence and be assured that that intelligence is being safeguarded. So there are implications, there's ripple effects to all of these sort of decisions. Um, so very, in my estimation, very damaging. Uh, we will find ways to continue to work with these partners because we don't have an alternative, but there are certainly going to be counterintelligence complications as a result of this decision by, by the UK, and I suspect um, it will also reinforce the decisions others are considering taking other partners that we have to include the Germans who haven't really come down yet definitively on how they are or not going to integrate Huawei. Um, I also wanted to mention just yesterday um, the DOJ FBI charged Huawei and two of its sus subsidiaries with federal racketeering conspiracy to steal trade secrets from American companies. So again, we're seeing repetition, constant evidence of the Chinese using tactics to either steal or coerce information, intelligence, intellectual property from um, our, some of our most important um, U.S. companies. Uh, you already touched on Equifax, so I'll skip over that one. Um, and you also talked about the, the communist state and the, the mention of the, the um, Chinese official media. I do think what you're seeing is a pretty important um, series of steps that the administration is taking to take a harder line against Trump China. The question will be, are we able to sustain this and to what effect? Um, because then I also saw yesterday that the, the president had made some tweets suggesting that we might be rolling back some of the restrictions on providing certain sensitive equipment to China. So, so I think there's probably a lot more to that story. I would simply say that um, the intelligence community is smartly concerned about the impact of the Chinese influence in just about every sector of the economy, um, and that if we don't get a handle on this now, that um, we will find ourselves in, in much dire straits, um, not the least of which is the example of the pharmaceuticals. Uh, let's see. One last thing I did want to touch on before we can open it up to questions, and this is something that I, I didn't pay a lot of attention to. My last assignment was over at the FBI. Um, I was our senior representative uh, to their, their seventh floor to their leadership team, and um, one of the things that they are highly focused on right now is domestic terrorism. And uh, you all may have re read in, in um, January, there were seven individuals affiliated with an organization called The Base, which ironically right. is the same name as Al-Qaeda Al -Qaeda. translated, 
a white supremacist group um, that were trying to enter the United States from Canada. The FBI arrested them. They were planning on attending the rally, the the rally in Richmond for gun control rights, or excuse me, uh, um, gun rights in Richmond. Uh, what's interesting to the about this story to me are a couple of things. Number one, I think. Uh, the fact that um, you're starting to see sort of a coalition of international ties to this new domestic terrorism. It, it's not simply a domestic terrorism problem, excuse me, but the white sort of race-based nationalistic um, threat that we're seeing increasingly across the world. You're seeing these international ties, which I think are really important to understand. I was also shocked because I was reading a um, uh, a a report by CSIS that noted that um, since 9-11, 110 people in the United States have been killed by domestic terrorists, whereas only 107 have been killed by what we would refer to as jihadist attacks, which is pretty striking and something which demonstrates the growing threat of this domestic terrorism. And I also think it's important because U.S. law has not caught up to this threat. In many instances, FBI and local law enforcement are really stymied in their efforts to effectively go after domestic terrorists inside the United States. There's a big push um, to try to seek for what we consider called foreign terrorist organization designations, which would allow them, would, which would allow our law enforcement a lot greater latitude to be able to go after these organizations. It would allow them to communicate or excuse me, to monitor communications between people that are, are designated in these groups, share intelligence about these groups with our allies overseas, and bring material support charges against some of these folks. Uh, but right now, none of those tools exist to directly address the uh, threat of domestic terrorism. So it's something that, in my mind, is becoming, as you start to see the rise of nationalism, not just in the United States, but in other countries, it's really something I think we're going to have to get a handle on. You always want to be able to respect free speech and the rights of the private citizens, but not at the expense of national security. And so finding that, fi you know, threading that needle and finding the right lane to walk becomes really important. So I'll stop there. There's plenty of other stuff. Thanks, Chris, Karen. yeah, Chris mentioned Minerva Project. We can also talk about the new DNI. Right. Uh, interim that was just tapped, as well as uh, there's an interesting report about a Russian dissident that was killed, found dead in uh, Germany. Ger yeah, in a French. In oh, the, the French. Fran in the French hotel room. Yeah. There was also so, a Chechen not too long ago yeah, killed that's, in Berlin, that's, right? Oh, okay. I thought yeah. he was in the, in France. So it's hard anyway. to keep track. Yes, it uh, is. Another right-wing attack yesterday in Germany mm -hmm. too. Haven't right. even rolled yep. through a lot of that story. We can dive deep on anything you want to dive deep on to include that last category of discussion, the idea of right-wing terrorism, uh, work the policy pieces at the White House, and at least one person that will not go recognized in this room worked on those issues with me um, at the White House. So we can talk about that or anything else you're interested. This is really your program driven by your questions. So I'll turn it back to Amanda, to gather up questions that you might have. Well, Thanks I for was, that, Karen. I was going to ask about the first question. I was going to ask about the newly appointed mm -hmm. acting director of intelligence and mm -hmm. maybe his anti-intelligence mm -hmm. approach and how, mm -hmm. how you all feel about that. And then turn it over to this lovely lady who's actually yeah. following directions and going to the mic. 
So I'll just help. jump in there and then Sorry. I'll let yeah. Karen <laughs> offer her opinion. Um, the bottom line is whoever goes into the role of the director of national intelligence has to be apolitical, that role. So whatever his or hers current position is, whoever has made the acting, and it appears to be the uh, ambassador to Germany is going to be appointed in an acting role, and Admiral McGuire, who I should mention, I think has done an extraordinary good job as an acting in a really tough environment. I've got a lot of respect for him, and Karen and I both know him, but just looking at it objectively in my perch here at the Spy Museum, I think he's done a very, very good job, but he's in an acting role. The next uh, DNI designee, if he's in an acting role, he has to first and foremost be uh, brutally, brutally apolitical because that's what the community needs. It is not a political position. And uh, fighting off politicization of intelligence is a constant mm -hmm. charge for anybody that serves the intelligence community. So that's not to say that a former ambassador uh, cannot step into that role and do a, a wonderful job. As a matter of fact, Director uh, Coates, former DNI, who who left making that vacancy in acting, he also served as the ambassador to Germany, I believe, and did a pretty pretty good job, I think, in the last few years. So it's critical that whoever is in that role um, changes their behavior to ensure that they are apolitical. That's what the community demands. Certainly being a customer as an ambassador of intelligence and working with presumably a chief of station and the FBI, the legal attaches overseas, that's going to give an ambassador a lot of experience, albeit maybe one posting for this particular designee. So I just think uh, we have to wait and see. Acting, um, acting is a tough role, too. I would like to see down the line, I would like to see a final confirmation for a, point, a permanent DNI. I think the community longs for that as well. I would, I would echo that. I think it's, it's um, paramount that we have a permanent DNI approved by the Senate as, as quickly as possible. I would also say that, you know, my experience has been, I've, I worked for 26 years under multiple you know, a myriad of different administrations, Republican and Democrat. And I, I can honestly say, having worked both at the agency very closely with DOD partners, as well as FBI, I very rarely, if ever, saw the political bias that is spoken of so often in the media. I just si simply didn't see it. I, I know that what got me out of bed every morning as a CIA officer was the mission. It was about making sure that I was collecting the best intelligence to allow policymakers to make informed decisions about how this country should address its national security threats. And I would argue that just about all of my colleagues in any embassy that I served, that was what motivated them. And, and furthermore, being back here in Washington, that that was what motivated um, most of the folks that I worked with to include even down at the NSC despite the fact that the NSC by its very nature tends to be a bit more politicized. Um, I would also say that, um, like Chris, I, I think we owe the president his due. He has every right to choose whomever he would like to serve as his DNI rep, and the onus is on the intelligence community, the onus is on those members of the DNIs under his portfolio to educate him about the importance of the missions that each organization
prosecutes in support of national security. I can tell you that um, I spent some time as an EA up on our seventh floor at the agency, and I, I remember at the time Director Panetta was the DCIA, and I remember him joking one time that, and he was clearly had been in, in Clinton's administration, was very politically savvy. He was chosen because of all, because of his political connections. And he came in and joked about how he, you know, in very short order was assimilated and that he learned to appreciate the role of the agency and that he understood the importance and the, that very quickly he understood that he had to leave his partisan positions at the door and that he then had to look at national security as, a, as the holistic challenge that it is. And so if we, my sense is that if we do our jobs right, if we endeavor to ensure that this new, you know, this new ambassador at a minimum is briefed and provided information, then we've done our jobs. At the end of the day, that's as much as can be asked of and, and we can only hope that he will take the role very seriously and as you said, Chris, will understand how critical it will be to help depoliticize the, the national security should be the one sacred cow. Unfortunately, it no longer is, but it should be. It should be in everybody's interest, whether you're Democrat or a Republican, to ensure that our president and the administration and the policymakers are getting intelligence to the best of our, finished intelligence that to the best of our ability portrays the facts. And that is it. We'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Thank you so much. If I may, I'd like to ask you do uh, comment on two topics. The first one is, of course, would you elaborate on the alt-right, the domestic terrorism issue, the policies, as well as the international connection? The second one is, I think it was last week, uh, there was a report about ISIS and ISIS uh, killing some um, Taliban individuals in Afghanistan. Obviously, uh, there are quite a few ISIS individuals everywhere in Iraq, in Syria, Afghanistan, et cetera. Um, could you comment on the likelihood of a resurgence, albeit watered down, but your thoughts on that? Thank you. Yeah. Hey, thank you very much. Those are two great questions and, and very different, right? Uh, so let me take the, uh, the point on ISIS. So ISIS are a natural enemy to the Taliban in Afghanistan. And the last count from open sources that I looked at, and I spoke about this um, at an event not too long ago on Afghanistan and the future th counterterrorism threat, there, we're talking about ISIS operators, hardcore terrorists in the hundreds. And uh, the Taliban is going to continue to put pressure on them. The real problem is whether 
with peace and reconciliation. Some Taliban are not satisfied with whatever agreement we end up with and migrate to ISIS and become a super something, something different maybe, uh, but another ISIS-like organization. So that's a concern. But I want you to know it's my opinion that the intelligence community, along with policymakers, are going to be very much zeroed in on making sure that whatever whatever agreements are made, that there are opportunities to continue to put pressure on that and force the right actors to make sure ISIS does not research. But it's going to happen globally because there are pieces of ISIS that, not to be alarmist, but they're going to operate. They're growing in West Africa in particular, in the Sahel and the African continent. So it just needs to be arrested like a disease in constant uh, intelligence sharing and in some cases direct action but that that takes us a little bit away from your question on Afghanistan that's how I would address ISIS in Afghanistan uh, it's not a significant problem today but it could grow in time in the second point I'll be very brief if I could just add yeah just yeah go ahead Karen say um, you know there has been some concern expressed that with the drawdown of truth what part of the agreement peace agreement with the Taliban if it goes forward assuming this seven-day ceasefire persists and, and we are able to get to, to a point where everybody, all parties agree. Um, if that were enacted, this, the um, U.S. government has retained the ability to continue to do force protection operations inside of Afghanistan as well as counterterrorism. So it'll be a reduced footprint. It'll be primarily special operations folks on the ground doing CT. But as we've seen in places like Syria, it doesn't necessarily take a huge footprint. It takes the right footprint of military officers to be able to affect the kind of operations in partnership with the locals on the ground to be able to make sure that they are keeping the ISIS, you know, SKK, um, in check. So I, I agree with Chris. I think the much bigger concern right now, particularly as we are starting to hear rumors about a significant drawdown in Africa, um, former Admiral Stavridis wrote a great op-ed that I highly recommend to you all. It was a fantastic op-ed about the implications of downsizing our footprint in Africa. And one of his concerns was precisely the fact that you were seeing this growth of ter um, terrorist factions, whether it's Al-Shabaab, whether it's Boko Haram, um, whether it is, you know, um, AQ in the Western Sahel that, that are on the rise at the very time that the U.S. might be stepping out of that theater. So I would agree with that. No, that, that's putting a finer point on it. So that's your first question. Your second question, and Karen did a great job of talking about domestic terrorism and some of the things policymakers and the communities thinking about. I was at the White House when Charlottesville happened. It, turned, it was a hate crime. There's always um, this idea then reemerges of an argument for making uh, domestic terrorism more encompassing, maybe more precision in the language, material support to terrorism. Uh, what does that mean in terms of domestic U.S.-based organizations? That is a hard problem, as Karen got to, because of First Amendment. My feeling what First Amendment rights, freedom of speech, when do they become uh, when, when do they cross over from somebody that's angry and has a right to speak to somebody that's going to execute a, a violent act and is going to mobilize for violence? So the FBI and elements of the Department of Homeland Security are always looking at it. 
very closely. So the good news that I shared last month and I want to reinforce here is there are underpinnings of, uh, of stress on in emphasis on domestic terrorism in the Department of Homeland Security right now. There's a new strategy in the Department of Homeland Security to ensure that we go after those that would target schools to include mass shootings as well as domestic groups getting ready to activate. So there is going to be more resources focused on those problems. But they're tough problems, too, because this idea of First Amendment rights and the ability for somebody to voice their opinion. But I think there is momentum to make sure legislation is put in place to better define this thing mm -hmm. of domestic terrorism. I was always frustrated in my office, and, and I think uh, Karen would echo we have all of these capabilities in the intelligence community, but they weren't always afforded to, f to focus and leverage to focus on domestic terrorism because we don't collect intelligence against U.S. persons ge generally or routinely without court orders and other mechanisms. So the bottom line is it is a tough problem, but I think we're making some, some progress. Karen? I would agree. I think you would hit on everything I would have mentioned. Thank you. What other questions do we have? This is Wait great. Here. Do you suspect there are any counterintelligence motives behind designating the five um, Chinese media companies as government actors, and why not make them register under FARA? So that's a sort of mechanical question, and I don't know all the nuance of what comes along with that designation, other than the fact it, that it's a recognition that they're behaving like the Chinese government. And I want to reinforce this idea of reciprocity. These kinds of, of strictures are placed on journalists from the West who operate in China and try to do their job. So we're leveling, we being the United States in this case, is leveling the playing field to make sure that we're applying the same due diligence to the Chinese journalists that are behaving more like the government. And I would be willing to bet, I have no evidence to prove this and no inside information, but some of those journalists might be working in an intelligence capacity. We do not do that in the U.S. intelligence community because we are not going to put journalists at risk. But that is a consideration. I, I would echo that. I think um, two biggest concerns. Number one is the misinformation piece, which we've talked about at length. It is not simply the Russians that are out doing that. It's the Chinese. And I think there was considerable concern that they were doing that. They were leveraging those um, those uh, various groups to, to propagate information that probably wasn't, that, that spun the Chinese narrative in a way that we didn't think was always accurate. So there's the misinformation piece, but absolutely, I, I, like Chris, I'm not going to speak to specific cases, but we absolutely know that in the past, journalist cover has been used to enable Chinese operations, both inside the United States and internationally. So there's no question that the that there is that aspect of it. So I think this is a, a, a legitimate and, and I would say um, deliberate move on the part of the administration to lay down yet another marker uh, to, to tell the Chinese that they can't just operate recklessly inside the United States in particular. Great question, thank you. Got one over here. Uh, first, uh, I just wanna say a quick 
note of thanks. Uh, your hard work and sleepless nights help us sleep better. So <laughs> I, I appreciate that. My, my question has to do with um, Chinese companies and working with Chinese companies like Huawei. Mm -hmm. Is the worry that Huawei is working tightly with the Communist Party or that they've developed uh, hardware vulnerabilities that will let the Communist Party and their intelligence services directly access the hardware? I think it's a combination of both. I, th I think you have to assume worst case scenario. If we can harken back to the Minerva project, as an intelligence officer, I will project that if you're an intelligence organization, you are always going to maximize any opportunity that you have to access, even if it's just initially to collect information on your adversary and perhaps ultimately, as necessary, deploy and use it for sabotage operations. So I, th I think that it's really um, it's both aspects that we're concerned about. And I think um, the challenge, honestly, is that when you look at a company like Huawei, because it's certainly not limited to Huawei, let's right. be clear. I mean, Huawei is, is front and center right now because of the, communica the communications are just such an easy threat for people to seize on and understand the implications of what that would mean that you know, a, a Chinese company could have access to communicate, secure communications, data, et cetera. But it goes, it, it covers the gamut of industry, you know, just about every, you know, pot right. with potential national security implications. But to the degree so, that it's physical, that provides an opportunity absolutely. for us as well, because if we can discover it, we can right. expose it, and then absolutely. our allies will see But the by then, it's too late, right? So, so that's a big risk to take, which is why the U.S. government is taking a position to, as much as possible, limit the introduction of Huawei equipment. Now, the challenge, of course, becomes, okay, and legitimately, governments like the U.K. will come back to us and say, great, so what's the alternative to Huawei? And that's a very fair complaint, because right now, by even the estimates of Samsung, Ericsson, these other companies, by their own estimates, Huawei is about one to two years ahead of them with respect to 5G. So you're talking about a huge delta between capability, and they're simply, the, for, for most countries, to include the United States, by the way, where Huawei permeates, I mean, the amount of Huawei equipment that's already inside this country is extraordinary let alone the information that's been repackaged and, and, and sold that we don't even know as Huawei. Um, so it's not a simple black or white question or answer, frankly, because there is no easy solution. And there's been a lot of discussions, hey, do we as a NATO bloc, do we try to create some sort of consortium? Is there some way to push back on the behemoth that is is um, Huawei, and you know, here to and uh, unfortunately, this is one of the the second and, and third order consequences of a, of a partnership that's starting to fracture. Is that, and that, in my mind, is is one of the the more significant downsides of of the fact that our tight alliance with with the Commonwealth, in particular, the, this has a huge impact because when we can't even rally our own closest allies to recognize, hey, we have a huge threat here, and if we don't bite the bullet now, it's certainly never going to get better. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Thank you both for being here and illuminating these important issues. Um, I have a, 
a question and a comment. My first comment is I was just about ready to hit buy tickets to China to take my family uh, on a touristy trip to China when I first heard a trickling of well, coronavirus. Well, wait a minute. Maybe I better not hit that button yet. And, of course, the days following that exponentially, we've got more and more news about the coronavirus, needless to say. We're not going on our trip in June. Um, even if we were to go, I was hesitant about bringing my cell phone into China, not that I have what I view as particularly sensitive information or names on in my contact list, but I was wondering, what if I should leave my cell phone, what if I should, my family and I should leave our cell phones at home and we're just, you know, we're not, we're normal people, we don't have any you know, particularly sensitive information, but you never know. So that's my comment. My question is, you touched about, touched on Chinese journalists, Chinese equipment. What about Chinese students? If you were to go through practically any university in the U.S., particularly in the engineering school, um, particularly in the computer science departments, you'll find an overwhelming percentage of students coming from China. I don't know if some go back, some stay. I imagine it's a little bit of both. But there just seems to be um, a, a, in some schools, I would say, from my own experience, almost a disproportionate percentage of Chinese students studying comp sci and other technology areas. I just wondered if you had any insights or comments about um, the students that, that, that come in here and, and you know, learn from, from us. I'll let Karen dive in maybe on the student student question because I I, I heard that some grumblings over there or rumbles or something. I don't think that was her stomach. Um, but uh, I think she can address that. What I want to do is hit the coronavirus real quick to underscore the point that the Wall Street Journal article, and I hope I'm not mistaken on this because it really broke yesterday, talks about this, this sick man uh, of uh, Asia, and it it was very critical of the Chinese government how it's handled coronavirus. Slow to report, as Karen alluded to. So that underscores a problem with the Chinese Communist you know, uh, Party. You don't want to show your vulnerabilities to the world, especially with what's at stake from an economic standpoint. So we have to be skeptical of what China says. That said, to be fair, on the other side of the spectrum, as I understand it, they've handled this much better than they did uh, with SARS a few years ago. So they've, they've, they've embraced some of that criticism. With respect to cell phones and, and uh, travel, I just think that every time my kids went to travel in places in the world, I was always uh, ensuring that they received a safety brief from, from dad, as well mm -hmm. as making sure they understood basic uh, principles of good security practices, even if you're not doing national security work for awareness and how to take care of your phones, but if you're not talking about classified, if you always accept that somebody might be collecting intelligence on your personal cell phone, if then you just go in eyes open, you keep those devices on you to the extent that you can, and you've got to live your life and use those uh, tremendous tools. So I wouldn't worry too much about that. Um, I'll let Karen maybe address the student issue because I think that is important. 
Absolutely. Um, we, I would say, and I think at last count, maybe there were about 800,000 Chinese students in the United States. I, I might be slightly off. So it's a tremendous number of students coming from China in particular. Um, not surprisingly, because of their high, high focus on high tech in their country, a lot of them come and study um, in some of our best schools, and they also are involved in some of the most sensitive research. Therein lies the problem. I'm not suggesting by any stretch of the imagination that every student that comes over here poses a threat to the United States. And science, as we know, scientific research demands collaboration among students and among, amongst countries in order to, you know, to reach the best possible um, conclusions. Having said that, uh, we definitely are looking to strike a much better balance. This was one of the top priorities for the FBI. They have done, in my estimation, a remarkable job in the last couple of years of educating, particularly the schools that are involved in very sensitive academic research that involves either high, uh, you know, technology, you know, biomedic research, whatever it is, um, they've done a great job, I think, of sensitizing those communities to the extent that even some of those academic um, facilities are self-organizing so that they're much smarter about how they are managing the counter potential counterintelligence threat. Again, I want to stress, it is not as if every student that comes over here poses a challenge or a threat to the, to the U.S. government. But we certainly have been, given we are an open society and pride ourselves on, the, on that, um, we have not taken the right measures. And I, I think, uh, not this time, but last time I think you alluded to the fact that you know there was just a, a senior research chairman of the right. research department at Harvard that was arrested for taking money from the Chinese and not disclosing it to, to Harvard or to DOD. And, and this has implications because, of course, it allows access to some of our most sensitive research facilities. So I think it, absolutely huge challenge um, to get our arms around. The good news, I think, is that there is absolutely a, a strong effort on the part of FBI in particular to address it. And I think, as I said, in my estimation, just even in the last couple of years that I was watching the evolution, of, uh, there is a new recognition. And you're seeing that even with the arrests of some of these visiting scientists, visiting students, that we are doing, getting a better handle on when they, in fact, are involved in things that they should not be involved in. Okay, thank you. I think we have time for one last question. Good afternoon. Um, my question has to do with uh, addressing the rising threat of uh, right-wing organizations. Uh, just wanted your further thoughts on uh, the impact of the work of FBI and other federal law enforcement agencies with uh, President Trump and, and his administration, which on the surface level looks like there's a political allegiance with some of these groups, you know, amplifying uh, conspiracy theories, uh, demonizing the FBI and other law enforcement organizations. How does that impact uh, the work of addressing that threat? Uh, and also your thoughts on infiltration of the FBI and the military uh, by members of these groups. So I'll just jump in there, and that's a, that's a very good question. The bottom line is there that goes right back to what we talked about, the First Amendment issues. You can be outspoken against the FBI wrongly or the CIA. You can, you can uh, sow 
bad information, disinformation, misinformation. At the end of the day, that doesn't break laws generally. So uh, yeah, we, we all think that hate speech should be tamped down across the board. And I think every time there's an attack and somebody's inspired by maybe something any politician says at a local level or elsewhere, uh, if somebody's inspired to act based on that, there is more discourse on tamping down harmful rhetoric. But at the end of the day, that's not illegal. Uh, the people that are mobilizing for violence are the ones that the FBI wants to bottle up, the Department of Homeland Security, and local and federal state law enforcement. I worry about the local law enforcement guy pulling over that anti-government individual on a highway routinely at a traffic stop. That is a significant vulnerability. The guy that doesn't want to take direction from anybody that's associated with the government. Somebody that's tied into all those conspiracy theories. But those theories have lasted for many many years throughout the 90s. This debate played out also, you know, in the aftermath of Oklahoma City. We tell part of that story here in the museum as well. So I think it's a continual process to educate the public and to ensure law enforcement is communicating uh, their priorities and working with community leaders. So it's a holistic event. That gets to this strategy that I cite from Department of Homeland Security. Um, the law enforcement and FBI and local law enforcement have done an excellent job on staying on top of that. But there's more work that can be done because we're not going to tamp down the ability for somebody to inspire somebody else to act. It's, a, it's an endless proposition, I think. But I, I think we have made progress, and that's the point I wanted to make. And I think, uh, at least in, in my tenure at FBI, and I stepped down in, in July of last year, but I'm assuming that if anything, the efforts have continued to intensify. There was a renewed focus. There had always been a focus on it, but I think even a more intensified focus post Charlottesville on this, and certainly a, a very important priority for Director Ray. Um, with respect to the rhetoric and, and things that are said um, outside of, of the, the official sort of um, law enforcement channels, I would say that, as we alluded to before, there is the domestic, sort of the, the domestic agenda and the politics around a lot of these issues. Um, and I don't see it having an impact on the FBI's focus on domestic terrorism. As I said, if anything, in my experience while I was there, I saw really them looking for ways to intensify um, their efforts and their partnerships in particular with local law enforcement to make sure that despite the restrictions um, on their abilities to meaningfully track a lot of these individuals, often until after the fact, that they were still doing everything within their power to uh, stay focused and give this the emphasis that it needed. So Amanda, you have final comments, so we're gonna wrap up. I have final comments, which are, you two are amazing, and thank you for sharing your expertise. Thank you. And I want to let people know we'll be doing another spy chat on March 19th with Michael Lacombe, not with Karen. He's got 
big shoes to fill or, or <laughs> red pumps to fill. So thank you all for being here very much. But we're certainly going to bring Karen back for these programs. You know why she spoke here today. So thank you very much for joining us. Appreciate it. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum or if you're local and want to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now.